short-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. Hey, Mike. Hey, May. How are you doing this morning? I am doing well. How are you? I think, you know, I think I'm, I, I appreciate you asking. I, I'm sort of hurt. Jay never asks how I'm doing and I feel like, I hope it's said that he doesn't care. Maybe it's just, it's too early, but thank you for asking. I'm doing, uh, <laughs> I'm doing well. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a little, we still, we're starting at 8 a.m., which is actually Good for me. I'm a morning person, and I guess you must probably be too. But I am ready to go. We have a lot to talk about. We do. And I got yelled at at a grocery store once because the person behind the meat counter asked me how I was, and I said good. And I didn't ask how she was, and she was offended by that. So you always have to ask. So you don't offend the people at the grocery store. Maybe that's the problem is I'm just too much of a snowflake and uh, Jay's trying to toughen me up. That could be anyway. Well, anyway, that's maybe a, a topic for another time. But we have a lot to talk about. We're going to be talking about the looming government shutdown, uh, Merrick Garland's testimony for Congress, Pennsylvania announcing that they're going to automatic voter registration. Uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's acquittal, uh, uh, some uh, legislation pending in Congress about college sports and uh, the Senate dress code. And uh, I have some thoughts also on the Danny Masterson conviction and the whole thing around that. Obviously, way more than we'll be able to get to in the regular show, but that's uh, more than enough for our for this show and then uh, into the midweek show. And we'll just go ahead and get started. But before we do, uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that our, we're trying out an experiment today, and that is uh, having our supporters at that Patreon supporters, $10 a month or higher level, giving them the opportunity to be a part of the entire episode. In fact, episodes, this and the, the bonus show. And uh, we, Jay and I experimented with this on like a special segment just for supporters, but I thought, why don't we open up the the whole the whole enchilada to to supporters to give them a little bit more? And so we're doing that, and and we have uh, we have a supporter with us uh, right now. And so if that's something you're interested in being a part of, well, we uh, we we hope you will in the future. And because uh, yeah, if you're hearing this and you're not, then it's already passed so anyway. But uh, but yeah, we're looking forward to trying it out and seeing how it goes. One other thing I wanted to mention is that. While we were putting together this week's episode, we learned that New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez was indicted on multiple federal corruption charges. Uh, he allegedly received cash, uh, gold bars, payments toward his home mortgage, uh, a bunch of other things, according to the indictment. And after searching Menendez's home, authorities found something like half a million dollars in cash hidden in various spots, $100,000 in gold bars. and. Now, this is nothing new to Menendez. It's the second indictment in the last eight years for him. He was previously charged with bribery, fraud and corruption or sorry, conspiracy for using his official position to help a friend involving a Medicaid uh, decision, Medicare, Medicaid, one of them. 
Uh, and on Friday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that Menendez would be stepping down from his role as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee until all this is settled. And uh, yeah, this is kind of a big deal, a senator being indicted. It doesn't happen that often. And Menendez has the dubious distinction of being the first sitting senator indicted twice on unrelated charges or unrelated cases. Now, we haven't had a chance to really read through the indictment, and so we're not going to be discussing it this week at length, but I, I didn't feel it would be right to just kind of let that pass. And so before we do move on, May, any any thoughts on the Menendez indictment? It's funny because I think it's being immediately politicized as a, from the left, saying, aha, the Department of Justice is can't possibly be one-sided because look we they indicted Bob Menendez and i think that that it, that argument is a little bit it, it's trying to prove too much i mean asking the fbi to look away from literal gold bars <laughs> yeah. into in in someone's house and just like a vast and very obvious and not very hidden scheme is a lot different. And you know, Bob Menendez is from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely going to be replaced by a Democrat. Like there's no po political risk here versus the presidency is always very close. It There is no Democrat that appoints your successor, um, you know, I guess. Even if Joe Biden's indicted, you get Kamala Harris, but that is a, a larger political risk for Democrats. So my initial take is I see where this is going. I see that this is being used to say that the DOJ uh, has no biases. I'm I'm not willing to take the Bob Menendez to buy that argument just yet. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that, but I, I, you can't see me rolling my eyes at that argument. But yeah, I think that's pretty ridiculous. I I understand presumption of innocence, certainly. And, and Bob Menendez deserves the presumption of innocence. But there is a lot of come on sort of stuff here, right? The gold bars, the New Jersey thing. And, and, and I should point out, I, you know, New Jersey, of course, is one of the more democratic states. And I bring that up because I think this is something that is more of a potential problem when you have essentially a one party state. Uh, it makes, I think, corruption more likely. I mean, Menendez has been continually in public office for 30, the last 37 years. And I think this just it makes it a lot easier for this culture of, well, I am above the law and corruption and I don't have any challenges, which is why I think healthy two-party competition or healthy even inter-party competition is so important as a check on this sort of thing. And again, maybe just miraculously, Bob Menendez is not guilty of anything here or just not guilty in the previous case. That was the jury deadlocked on that and prosecutors decided not to go forward. But Boy, there sure is a lot of smoke here, and I guess we'll see if there's fire. So there we go. All right. Well, moving on to our lead story. Uh, last week, Jay and I talked about the possibility of a government shutdown at the end of this month. And Jay said he thought that Speaker McCarthy would somehow find a way to sort of rein in enough Freedom Caucus members to avoid that. And certainly that's what McCarthy has been trying to do, though I would say at this point, things don't look all that great. 
But Jay also predicted there'd be some brinksmanship. And with around a week to go now, well, we haven't, I guess, quite reached the absolute brink. There's a lot of time still for, you know, political posturing before uh, a CR would be passed to avoid a shutdown. And, and, and I should say, this isn't just the liberal media, you know, trying to sort of whip up Republican dysfunction uh, where none exists. I mean, there are a bunch of House Republicans who are saying they've got big problems. I mean, uh, Tim Tim Burchett was calling his party very dysfunctional right now. Uh, Clay Higgins is calling out those few members of the Freedom Caucus who he says are making inconsistent stands of their own principles. And if you look to the Senate side, there are a number of Senate Republicans who are saying that McCarthy's going to eventually have to go to Democrats for votes, though he'll understandably avoid doing that until the bitter end because he knows the the jeopardy to his speakership if that happens. Uh, you know, there was uh, there was one Republican senator who was speaking to the Hill. He said, uh, or she, it was anonymous, said that it's really hard. When you have snipers on your own team shooting at you from inside the perimeter. Uh, so, yeah, May, I, I guess I wonder what you think. You think the media is kind of hyperventilating on this prematurely or is kind of what we saw late this week? I mean, McCarthy unable to even get the Republican de- defense bill to the floor. That's usually the easiest appropriation bill for Republicans to agree on. Is that a sign that uh, I guess sort of the Freedom Caucus inmates are running the asylum? Well, I think it's fair to criticize that there's dysfunction here that's basically impossible to look away from. I don't notice uh, the media giving Republicans a lot of credit for their function during the debt ceiling process where they passed a proposal very early on, indicated willingness to talk to President Biden about it. I mean, that was about as functional as you can. Yet, I think all of the Republican asks there were very reasonable. There weren't extreme. And ultimately, they were able to, with just, you know, one chamber and no presidency, get a spending bill that many Republicans could be proud of. So, you know, calling this one incident an example that the whole thing is dysfunctional, I think, forgets a very recent past. And Maybe it's forgivable to see some dysfunction because we do have $33 trillion of national debt. Like this is, it's, it's an incomprehensible number. If every single household, every single household paid $1,000 just to the debt without adding more, it would take the nation 21 years to pay off the debt. So, it is a problem that calls for dysfunction, I think, because it is so monumental. Um, and and I, I, I think it's hard to get people online. That said, I am sensing that this isn't really fully just about uh, crazy spending. Because, you know, if you want to rein in spending, what's the thing you need to do? You need to win the Senate and you need to win the presidency. That's that's the thing that you need to do. And what I see the uh, I don't want to even say the Freedom Caucus, because this is not the Freedom Caucus. This is a few members. Um, What you see Matt Gates and friends doing is not winning seats is uh, Matt Gates clearly doesn't like Kevin McCarthy uh, (laughs) and is him so publicly and is just trying to make his life miserable to, in my opinion, no 
clear win at the end. Yeah. You know, there, there was, uh, I, I like how uh, Mike Rogers, uh, he's a, a senator, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, I believe the, uh, yeah, from Alabama, right? Who said uh, something like, "There are five clowns who don't know what they want except for attention." And it seems to me that, that that's exactly that. I think it's it's good that you pointed out that it's not the Freedom Caucus as a whole. It's sort of these these few members, and that that's the point is that is that McCarthy can only afford to lose literally five votes, and these people, which is why I think the term dysfunction is incorrect. It's just simply a number of more extreme members of the party understanding the leverage that they have and using that leverage. And I feel like it would almost be, in a way, irresponsible for them not to use that leverage if, in fact, they are they have a principled position here. And I think you're right. You can make a principled argument about that. There are Freedom Caucus members who say, you know, we feel like we got rolled on the debt ceiling negotiations and we we didn't agree to that, which is why we're pushing this now. I don't know that those five members are there, uh, that they're necessarily, it's a principled thing. Maybe for some of them it is, it's probably a combination of things. But the term dysfunction would suggest just kind of everything's going off the rails. And I just don't, that just doesn't seem accurate to me at this point. Yeah, I think that you have a lot of very fiscally conservative fiscally conservatives who are on McCarthy's uh side here who are realists. So McCarthy is putting together a proposal that would fund the government through this continuing resolution posture for a month. Um and the spending level that would be set is the pre-pandemic spending level, which is still astronomically high. Um, if you can recall, pre-pandemic, Trump wanted to increase defense spending. And in order to get it passed, he had to uh, increase non-defense spending to the same level. And of course, Trump wanted a big increase for defense spending. So pre-pandemic spending is still a lot of spending. Um, and with that uh, one-month extension, then McCarthy was planning to do the thing that these holdouts wanted, which is single subject spending bills. Um, I don't think anyone could or should disagree that single subject spending bills are the preferred path. We should know and we should think about and we should debate what is in each spending bill. And the fact that we haven't had that process for decades now is like a national embarrassment. However, when you have a divided Congress and you need to do things like Trump did, which is, okay, fine. If we want to increase defense spending, then we'll give you money for NIH to do, you know, Beagle research. That's fine. Those types of deals are the only deals. They are the only deals that are going to get through. And I don't know what world Matt Gates is living in, but he's he's not alone in his world. Like I watch Fox News and the primetime hosts say, you know, Matt Gates is right. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the problem, it seems to me, is that we have to understand their incentives. And it seems to me to, to a, for a small number of these folks who have this outsized power because of the margin is that their goal is chaos. 
that that's you know their their brand is chaos. That's what they thrive on. That's how they. I think Matt Gates is hoping that, or at least Matt Gates and company, those folks are hoping that that McCarthy ends up having to go across the aisle and pull in some Democrats because that gives them. Uh, some sort of a you know a, a reason to start challenging his calling those votes to to vacate the chair and to challenge it. and that's good for them and you take a look at the fundraising numbers uh, it it makes total sense if you assume that the incentive is attention and campaign money and profile as opposed to as you pointed out before, setting up a situation so that they can be in the majority and and, and I mean a solid majority and actually govern. I don't think that they really care about governing. And and you know, that's not Republicans as a whole. I think most Republicans absolutely care about governing well as they see it. But if you have even a small number of folks who don't, well, this is this is the result you're going to get. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. Yeah. And I, I do think that there is, you know, in defense of the holdouts, um, a lot of built up frustration, not necessarily just because of crazy spending, which is something that like babies should be upset about because they're the ones who are going to have to pay for it. Um, But this sense that bipartisanship or deals never seem to go the Republicans way. Like if, if Republicans want something, even, you know, the tax cut and jobs act under Trump, it's going to be purely Republican. and yet when the Democrats want something, there's this image in the media that uh, that is a bipartisan bill, that this is a reasonable proposal. And um, and you'll get a lot of people like, let's just say, Lindsey Graham, who votes for basically every Democrat judicial appointee, um, thing, things like this, uh, you know, Mitt Romney, a lot of people who voted for the CHIPS Act, the um, Infrastructure Act, these types of things. Um, that these that yeah, this bipartisanship thing has slowly chipped away at the idea of limited government. It has uh, chipped away at culture. It has chipped away at individual responsibility. Like every time that there's a bipartisanship thing, it moves further away from conservatism and closer to liberalism. I think people could. Oh, maybe pick out different examples and say that I'm wrong. But that is definitely the sense, the feeling, the frustration, the anger on the right side of the aisle. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's interesting to me when we take a look at uh, the House versus the Senate. I think even if McCarthy was able to get everything that he wants in a CR, it seems to me that, number one, the Senate is going to insist on a CR that has more Ukraine aid, and also that they want a clean CR, which means that there aren't going to be those policy riders that, you know, that small number of folks in the Freedom Caucus want things like uh, issues related to the border, what they call the weaponization of the DOJ, uh, woke, what they call woke policies in the military. That's that's not going to be, I don't think those are serious demands. Again, I think this is just an effort to sort of sow chaos and and make this fail, basically. But the Senate is, the Senate has been very, you know, much more, I guess, bipartisan in that sense. They want to get this done, whereas it's it's definitely not my house, not my sense uh, in the House. And I wonder if that's your sense as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because spending fights are tough for Republicans to win because a real spending fight, if you're a conservative, is less money. And although in theory, you know, oh, I like the government spending less money when it's coming for me or my budget. Like we, I think one year proposed zeroing out the Special Olympics. Apparently the federal government pays for the Special Olympics. You know, you could make a real argument that the federal, it's not the federal government that should be paying for this. Maybe the Olympic Committee, which has a federal presence or, you know, something like that. But that was just, oh, my gosh, these people are pure evil when you're like, well, I was just trying to cut fat. Well, if you're really trying to cut, there's just no way to win a spending fight by saying you want less. Every single area that you are picking to cut, even IRS agents, stuff like that, that you would think would be pretty, uh, I don't know, like we can all agree that we don't want the IRS to take our money. Well, it seems like you're like in favor of rich people doing whatever they want. So um, it's a lot easier to win a spending fight if you want more money. And that's the thing. Like, I think that the spending fight that the Republicans could win probably relates to immigration, some sort of more money for the border wall, more money for uh, housing uh, people who illegally cross that way that they can be processed and returned. But then you're just asking for more money. And so if you want more money for this, then the Democrats are going to say, well, I want more money for, you know, like COVID research or something. So it it is nearly impossible for Republicans to win a spending fight. The only thing I think you can do is just win the Senate, win the House and win the presidency and then ram something through however unpopular. Yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, every every program, the, the old sayings, every program creates a constituency and then it's seen that you're taking something away from somebody. It's always easier to spend, always more popular politically to spend. And, and I think the only sort of uh, lever that Republicans can pull is they can do tax cuts because the public likes more spending and less in taxes. But of course, that calculation doesn't end up that that leads you to $33 trillion in debt, basically. And so if you have, you know, the Tax Cut and Job Act that cuts maybe taxes by a trillion and a half and you don't cut spending by a trillion and a half, well, that comes from somewhere. And that's that's the problem. And sort of there's a bipartisan, I think, agreement or enough of that. We should spend more. And if if you are a limited government conservative, that is deeply, deeply frustrating. Though I, I, one other thing I'll point out is I would argue that on the issue of the IRS, that's one thing where I would argue we need more spending on. But that's a whole, whole, other, well, I, that's one of my like hobby course sort of things. I, I see it as a form of law enforcement and collect on the taxes we have. And but anyway, I, I couldn't let that pass without without chiming in. My, my yeah, like I in. said, it, it, you would think it's something that's very popular. But then, you know, you and I'm sure a, a whole host of other people would say, no, no, no. Um, and yeah, I just can't take debt reduction seriously unless the the individuals who are holding out have proposals to cut Social Security and Medicare. Obviously, the bulk of like mandatory spending programs. So if you're trying to focus on the Special Olympics or whatever, and you're not focused on Medicare and Social Security, you are not a serious individual. And that is exactly what is going on here. Yeah, it's basically like we have this this sort of gaping chest wound and people are talking about hangnail treatment. I mean, because you're right, it's it's the entitlement programs. Uh, you could argue it's the entitlement programs and the defense spending. That's the 
the mad, the vast bulk of the entire federal budget. And unless you unless you tackle that part, then you're not really going to get anywhere. And, and I don't I don't see the political will for that essentially anywhere except for small pockets in Congress. So. Right. I can 100. I will bet whatever you would like to bet that we have a government shutdown come September. I, that's so, I, I was going to ask you that because Jay's predictions were that he thought that McCarthy would be able to avoid a shutdown and he would keep his speakership. And I wanted to get your take on that as as, a, as another Republican take. So I have talked to some people in the House and they uh, would also be on the side of the bet that I would, which is that we're heading toward a government shutdown. So to the extent it matters what the staffers think, the House staffers are expecting a shutdown. So I think that I'm expecting one as well. Being in the Trump administration, I've lived through multiple uh, government shutdowns, like the national malls get a little dirty uh, there, you know, but it's not, you know, not as we've all, we've all lived through multiple, it's not catastrophic. So I think, uh, I think that we should expect one. Um, will McCarthy keep his speakership? I, I think I'll go with Jay here. Not that it won't be challenged, not that we won't go through multiple rounds of voting, not that it won't be embarrassing and a waste of time, but Matt Gates has no alternative. I've watched multiple interviews where they've asked, like, who's your guy? He's kind of said, eh, maybe sometimes he points to Steve Scalise, who has no intention of running for or challenging uh, McCarthy and would be in would govern exactly the same as McCarthy. Uh, but yeah, Matt Gates has no alternative. And so there, if you have no alternative, it has to be Kevin McCarthy. All right. Well, I, I agree with you on, on both of those, on both of those counts. And so we will, we will see about a week from now. All right. Well, why don't we move on to uh, a story? Actually, you're going to lead us into here. Uh, Merrick Garland uh, goes up on the hill and testifies. Right. So if you had uh, six hours of your life to spare on Wednesday, <laughs> then you could have watched the House hearing with Attorney General Merrick Garland. This was an oversight hearing. It primarily focused on how the Department of Justice is handling the investigation into Hunter Biden. Um, A.G. Garland also answered questions about whether Biden asked him, Merrick Garland, to indict President Trump because there has been reporting from the New York Times that Biden was telling his allies that Trump was a threat to democracy and should be prosecuted. And he wanted Garland to stop acting like a ponderous judge and to take decisive action. And I thought Garland's response to that was a little bit interesting. It was a question by Adam Schiff, um, so a friendly. And Garland responded that the that no one had ever told him, Garland, personally to indict Trump. So that answer is nothing for me. It's like, well, did someone tell the Department of Justice, uh, you know, what exactly was said? Are you saying that the New York Times has its reporting wrong? You know, it, it was a it didn't get into the details that I wanted which I think is the theme of the hearing, which is that it was a high passion hearing, but ultimately a pointless one because Merrick Garland answered essentially nothing. 
Uh, he either said that he had no knowledge, no idea what they were talking about. It was an ongoing investigation. Not only will I not tell you what the contents of certain conversations was, I won't even tell you whether I had those conversations or not. So I gained very little from this hearing, despite its length. Uh, Mike, what was your, did you have any major takeaways? I was also very unsurprised and unenlightened. It went exactly according to form. I mean, right, they started out with Jim Jordan saying, you know, the purpose of the hearing, uh, essentially to examine how the just DOJ has become politicized under Garland's leadership. So, I mean, this, of course, it you know, it starts with the conclusion, then we try to work backward to justify it. And Garland is a, is a savvy operator, right? He's not going to provide ammunition for that. And of course, he's going to say exactly the things that he did say. And it's going to change nobody's mind. It's going, it's, it's, it's sheer political theater. Though that said, I think there were a couple of things that stood out to me. Uh, n- number one, Garland still didn't explain why he appointed Weiss a special counsel in the Biden case, even though previously, right, he'd said that he didn't need to do so. All he said was, well, you know, we've, we've, I've never interfered with this investigation. And, and I think he said that. I think he responded that way because the reason he appointed him a special counsel is that was, it, was a, it was an optics political kind of move, but he didn't want to say that. And so, I, I mean, I, at least that's my take on, on the Weiss thing. And I wanted to get your, your take on that before we kind of moved on to some other stuff. Yeah, I have written down in my notes exactly this. I still find David Weiss's role in the saga somewhat confusing. Like that, that's how I feel about it. And it's how I felt going in before and how I felt going in afterward, which is according to the whistleblowers who are not crazy people. This is not, you know, Sidney Powell. These are, in one case, a gay Democrat IRS. These are lifelong IRS agents um, committed to, I think, uh, standards in the IRS who say that David Weiss did not have full authority um, and was turned down in some manner from bringing some cases. I think that that has been confirmed. He wanted to potentially charge in DC and he was not able to. That conflicts directly with what Merrick Garland had testified to in the Senate earlier, which was that David Weiss had all the authority that he needed. And then I think at the hearing, we heard something a little bit more nuanced, which is that he had the authority to ask. Garland for the authority so that he could have the authority that he needed. Um, And so because we've heard so many iterations, we have the whistleblower version, we have the old DOJ version, now we have the new DOJ version. I I don't understand. this. why, Why does the story keep changing? That said, if I'm confused, I know that um, the average American is not going to spend 10 minutes of their life trying to untangle what's actually whose story is correct and what's going on and whether we should care. And this is, I think, the problem oftentimes with Republicans is you're trying to land a body blow and really show that DOJ is corrupt. And I think that there are a lot of areas. I think the school board moms was a great one. Like, look at this letter from the teachers union 
to DOJ saying prosecute parents and DOJ putting out a letter saying we're going to think about prosecuting parents. So that that to me was a simple one. We got it. We understand it. We don't like it. This David Weiss saga is too complicated. We don't understand it. And therefore, it's hard. It's hard to care. It really is. I want to get back. I'm glad you mentioned the school threats memo thing because that actually came up. I I want to come back to that in a second. But uh, on that, the Weiss thing, there's also the element of Weiss has has said uh, publicly that he was not interfered with in any way and had full authority. But you're right. The the overall story, I guess it seems difficult for me to understand why anyone could look at everything we, we know, and there's a lot we don't know. And not say, well, there's nothing worth investigating here. Of course, there's something worth investigating here. And and I don't think it has to be a black or white, well, the DOJ and Garland are horrifically corrupt or there's nothing here. It's a big nothing burger. It seems to me that at least to the extent that I feel like I understand people and organizations and political motives, it seems to me reasonable to think that, well, DOJ investigators would think people involved in the case would think, well, geez, this is this is the president's kid. And maybe we'll just sort of slow walk it a little bit. Not that we're going to necessarily not prosecute, but we're going to err on the side of political expediency and caution. I, I think this is just sort of natural human behavior. And that can sometimes move into corruption. But it would be, I think, an unrealistic expectation for people involved in these situations not to have any sense of the prevailing political environment and how it might affect their job security and their uh, ability to get promoted and so forth. And so I feel like that degree of nuance is essentially lost when everyone is just so eager to, to you know, cast aspersions and, and pick sides. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I have a friend who's an FBI agent, and he was telling me about the culture, which I assume uh, is very similar to IRS being involved in FBI investigations. I don't see how that would change it, although he does like Chinese counterterrorism, so probably not as much IRS. Um, And he said that there is no reward for... uh, straying outside of the bounds. So if it seems like, you know, trying to take an aggressive Hunter Biden stance would not, would be a little bit outside the bounds. There's no reason anyone's going to fight for it, ask for it. There's no reason any supervisor is going to grant that authority. And that type of very non-dynamic culture of just get promoted, you know, don't ask questions, stay within the lines. You know, there's pros and cons. I think you have a lot of uh, function, functionality maybe in the FBI. You don't have people piping up all the time. But I think there's really something to be lost because if what you want to do is outside of what sort of the prevailing thing is or what you think it is, and all you're trying to do is serve your six years and then get promoted and serve your six years and then get promoted, whatever the time frame frame is, you're going to have kind of like a Bob Menendez situation where there just ultimately is a lot of corruption because there's too much uh, uh, agreement and there's no reward for 
asking questions and and etc. So that that lack of dynamicism in the deep state, the FBI and IRS deep state, I think probably has more to do what's going on than any specific like we must protect the Bidens at all cost. That said, you know, I don't I don't know. We, there's Merrick Garland wouldn't say anything about anything. And David Weiss is not going to say anything about anything. So uh, we'll just have to see. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's dead on. And, you know, I, I wanted to, like I said, you mentioned the school threats memo. And I, I know a lot of folks on on the right, and it sounds like you included, think, well, this should have been an easy one, right? I, and, and Garland was questioned about that school threats memo. I think he was asked whether or not it had been rescinded. And he said uh, something to the effect that, well, there's no reason why it should be rescinded. And I was curious about that. So cause I, I pulled up the memo. It's a, it's a short thing. It's just one page. And honestly, I read it and I thought, this seems like an entirely uh, this maybe where the left and the right just are, are speaking past each other. But I read it and I thought, well, yeah, I, I would hope that uh, the DOJ would be concerned about threats made, harassment, intimidation to school administrators, board members, teachers, that sort of thing, whoever is making it. So I guess through my lens, it it wasn't at all we're going to prosecute parents for speaking up at at school board meetings. That to me would be horrific and well outside of the legal authority of of any agency. And so I didn't see it as a big deal, but clearly this is the case where the two of us can can look at the same thing and come to very different conclusions. Yes. Well, there's a lot of background. If the DOJ was just um was being nonpartisan and just wanted to have uh, peace in our neighborhoods. I don't know exactly whether school boards should be your top priority. I feel like there are other neighborhood issues that you'd want to focus on. And yet DOJ decides to focus on school boards, like hmm, not, not gangs, like school boards. Okay. Why is that? Well, five days before the memo came out, a school board association, so a union had asked, uh, the DOJ to put out this memo and they asked him to put out this memo in response to the Loudoun County parent who was very upset that his daughter had been assaulted by a non-binary student and who was in the bathroom that didn't correspond with that student's sex at birth and the Loudoun County School Board would give had no time for this parent whose daughter had been assaulted not a second of their time they did not care and instead they treated the parent as the threat not the student the parent and i think that that was so offensive because obviously parents will go to any length to protect their children from assault and what we need is we need our law enforcement we need our school boards to also go to any length to protect our children from assault. And instead of the government getting behind that very simple ask, what happens in response to this Loudoun County incident, the Department of Justice, the feds, the biggest law enforcement agency that there is, comes down and says, not that we're going to care about lax school boards, not that we're going to, you know, help protect women, protect girls in our schools, 
that we are going to look at parents in response to this incident. And that was just wild and unacceptable. No, if I, as a parent, want to make a ruckus because my child is getting assaulted in a bathroom by somebody who should not be in that bathroom, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the school board and I'm going to say, I, I'm going to continue to make noise until, um, until my children are protected. And I think that any parent should be on board with that. And the fact that the Department of Justice was not, I think, was just, you know, case number one for uh, conservatives saying this is this is a group that cares about uh, unions and not about parents. Well, I, I certainly don't disagree with anything you said about parents and protecting kids. And if school boards in any way are acting, assuming that parents are the problem and the threat when there are horrific things happening to their kids, that is totally not okay. That is absolutely unacceptable. But but I also agree with uh, uh, Derek, uh, who's who's here uh, today with us, mentioned, you know, do up and coming problems not matter? I mean, gangs, sure, they're a problem. How long have we gone for gangs? And they're still a problem. And I think it is right for the DOJ to respond to uh, to any kind of threats, to have some kind of public statement. But and in reading, in my reading of the statement, they say, you know, while spirited debate about policy matters is protected under our Constitution, that protection does not extend to threats of violence or efforts to intimidate individuals based on their views. And of course, you and I and every reasonable person agrees with that. But I hear what you're saying. It's saying that, well, the timing was very suspicious and not coincidental. And it certainly felt, even though nowhere in the memo does it say parents, it certainly gave the impression that the DOJ was was telling parents, listen, if you speak up too vehemently at these school board meetings, we're going to go after you. I guess that's that's what I'm hearing you saying. Is that more or less right? Right. Because if you look into this Loudoun County parent, Scott Smith's case, he was tackled by law enforcement at a school board meeting for talking. I mean, he wasn't lunging at anybody. He like it's you feel bad for him. He's kind of like an overweight, just middle class guy. And like you can see his like pants almost coming down a little. It just it's so I think hard to watch and um and and so if you want to tell us doj that you're here to respond to threats of violence that's fine but i think that you have much larger threats of violence when you have uh people spray painting threatening messages and completely vandalizing uh pro-life pregnancy centers way more so then when you have kind of like chunky, caring dads speaking too loudly at a school board meeting and the fact that we have DOJ targeting memos on the latter and not the former should does give and should give all of us some question about the uh, political leanings of our law enforcement. Yeah, and I and I think you know uh, J.K. Dawson who just joined us pointed out asked you know shouldn't threats against school boards be primarily a matter for state and local law enforcement and yeah I think that's a, a 
I understand what, what you guys are saying. And I think that is right. I, I guess, I guess there are two ways to look at this. And one is I don't think there's anything wrong in a sense with the DOJ saying, listen, if, if someone is, is making threats against public officials, of course, that's a concern. But, but I understand that you're saying, well, you have to look at the wider context and it feels like it is political targeting. And so I get it at that level. That 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 makes sense to me, though. Uh, again, I think there's a difference between putting out a targeting memo and actually dedicating resources and time and so forth to actually doing the targeting. I think a lot of this is done for the politics and the optics of it when there's not actually necessarily any follow through. And maybe that is, in fact, uh, a good thing. But you know, speaking of targeting, I, there was another targeting issue that came up that I think was pretty important. And, and uh, Attorney General Garland got visibly upset at this when he was asked about whether the uh, DOJ was anti-Catholic. Right. And this relates to uh, a memo from the Richmond Field Office that was put out uh, that targeted what's called radical traditionalist Catholic ideology. And uh Garland's response to that was, I think, essentially that, well, you know, we were we thought this memo was horrific. It was just one field office. But then there was more reporting saying that the Richmond field office sort of coordinated with some other FBI field offices and at least putting together this memo, even though it was released by the Richmond office. And I wanted to get your take on on that. I have some thoughts on it, but I wanted to, to get your sense of what, what you thought about that whole issue. So I thought it was interesting to watch Garland's reaction clearly irritated and angry and almost like shaking um, from somebody who otherwise is potentially one of the most boring people that (laughs) I've had to watch on television. So, um, so, you know, why is this affecting him so much? And, And his words say that it's because he's Jewish, right? His family history, I think that's what is meant by that. Um, but I I don't buy it necessarily. I think you could ask a lot of Jewish people what they think about the Richmond FBI memo um, who are part of the FBI, and they would have things to say and not get so visibly shaken. My sense of what it is, is that this one, it, it, uh, it's a real problem for him. Like this is something like this, this is, this is no good. And, um, that line of questioning, I think should make Merrick Garland a little bit nervous. So I saw the anger as a little bit like nerves more than I'm Jewish. I, you know, I read the memo. I actually read the, cause I think most, almost nobody's actually read the memo, but I thought, well, I'm kind of curious as to what this is actually all about, what the Richmond field office said. And uh, I guess I, after reading the re- memo, I was sort of disappointed that Garland didn't defend it. Like he said it was abhorrent and, you know, and didn't reflect the view, but I thought at least in my reading of it, and maybe this is, I, I don't know, but it seems to me that if there is, in fact, some any sort of radical group that is considering any sort of terroristic action, that the F, it would be on the FBI's radar. I don't care if they're if they're Catholics or Black nationalists or or, or anyone. I would hope that if you are engaging in potential acts of terrorism, that it shouldn't matter 
what your religion is, if you're affiliated with a religion. Uh, now, certainly there are some issues, I think, particular to religion because that involves certain right, specific First Amendment protections and so forth. But my gosh, I read the memo. It's like, if these people are doing this stuff, I would hope the FBI would know something about it because it's not just like, oh, there are just some people who want the the mass in Latin who are just really concerned about that. They're talking about stockpiling guns and, and, and acts of anti-Semitism and so forth. So, I mean, don't we want the FBI to at least have a sense of what's going on there? I, I, I sure think we do. I, I guess, um, so, you know, I also have read the memo and, you know, one of the like early footnotes is like, oh, we're not talking about Catholics or even traditional Catholics. We're talking about traditional Catholics who are racists. Okay. Well, then there's no church of like the radical, uh, um, traditional Catholics. There are people who are traditional Catholics. And if what you're doing is you're concerned about people who are in that larger group, who those people are racist or violent extremists or whatever, to target and mention that this is the church and somehow connected with one's faith rather than I don't know, yes. these individuals, like, yeah. it's yeah. not as if there's a teaching maybe with certain terrorist groups where the teaching of the church, there is a strain of the religion that is, uh, you have to do suicide bombings, right? Like that is, you should have a check on any religion that has suicide bombings of, you know, people who don't adhere to your principles. That makes sense. Here, I think it was different because there is no Catholic teaching that is violent extremist in that matter manner. And if what you're looking for is those people, then you're looking for those people and you're not looking for that religion. And the conflation of the two is... Um, is lazy, I think, and shows, I don't know, either a base non-understanding of religion or respect for religion. I, 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 yeah. yeah I, I, I'm sure he could I, have yeah. explained it better. I, I agree. And I feel like uh, a good statement on that would have said that there are people who are perverting these nonviolent, loving teachings of this religion that, and, you know, hiding behind this essentially for terroristic ends with their, it, trying to push their ideology of hate. And while we certainly, you know, the, the Roman Catholicism, whatever Catholicism in general, wonderful thing, bedrock of America, what have you, that we will not tolerate this. And it's particularly reprehensible when it is done sort of under that umbrella of saying, well, we're, we're religious to me. That's what makes it even, even more reprehensible. And that wasn't the, I mean, that nuance, that, that sort of distinction wasn't made and, and it should have been, I think. But, uh, you know, Derek, Derek had a, has a comment here saying that he feels like Republicans are all for law and order until the system sort of tries to prosecute one of them, in which case all of a sudden everything's a, a, a witch hunt. And, and I feel like to me, I think that that that's maybe the case on both sides. And in fact, I would argue that Republicans have 
become much less, if you will, the party of at least federal law and order. And I think that kind of dates from the the Trump years, right? And, and there certainly is a political aspect of this. But once you start questioning the uh, the legitimacy, the politicization of federal law enforcement, well, where does that stop? And you open that can of worms and then everything starts to be uh, up for consideration. And so I don't know. What, what do you think about that, May? It is tough. I I think it's true that it's hard to both criticize law enforcement as uh, corrupt in some way and um, and be in favor of law enforcement. But I and and I I think the line that I would draw is bureaucracies are corrupt. And when you have these large uh, sort of unaccountable, like that's the problem with DOJ a little bit. He doesn't feel like he's beholden to anybody. He says he's not beholden to Congress. And he says he's not beholden to the president. Now he might be, but he's certainly not going to answer any questions about that because of privilege this or, you know, investigation that. Versus when you have local law enforcement that you've got, you know, an elected sheriff, but also the cops are your neighbors and, you know, there's only 50 of them in the department and there's oversight from the city council. Your city council has five members. You've got a mayor like that type of oversight that has a budget that is real, you know, these cities have to actually operate within their budget. And so they are much more likely to use their resources to go after hardened criminals and less likely to, I mean, well, I live in Shaker Heights, like go after zoning violations. <laughs> yeah. Shaker Heights, they exclusively go after zoning violations. But um, so, so I, I think the law enforcement angle as I see it is not are you pro or anti-law enforcement and I'm pro it when it's going after my enemies and I'm anti it when it's coming after me obviously there's a little bit of that hypocrisy I'm not going to deny that but I think uh the the for me the clearer line is um is like the the bureaucratic angle is like or is there something I feel like I can't control? I don't like things I can't control. And I do like things I can control. The Fonnie Willis one is obviously she's local. Um, and they can control it. If whenever the Georgia legislature is in session, cities do not exist without the state. If they want to fire Fonnie Willis, they absolutely can. There is accountability there. I. But that that one, whatever. That, that sounds, also, yeah. the other thing. It, it's, it's sort of a standard uh, old-fashioned conservative argument for local control, small government for all those reasons. And I think there's really a lot to be said for that. Um, all right. Well, this week, the governor of Pennsylvania announced that the Pennsylvania DMV would now become the 24th state to have automatic voter registration at the DMV, according to the press release, uh, Pennsylvania residents who are eligible to vote can obtain new or renewed driver's license and ID cards and can uh, obtain those ID cards at facilities such as the DMV 
will be automatically taken through the voter registration application process unless they opt out of doing so. Um, Different states have different opt-out processes. Most states have what's called a front-end opt-out where you are you are going to be taken through voter registration, but there is some interaction at the DMV where you can speak up and say, I'd like to not. Oftentimes there's uh, the DMV person will say, I'm going to go ahead and register you to vote um, unless you don't want me to do so. So, um, and any sort of silence, I guess, if you just had to be silent to that, uh, question, I think that would be a yes. You're you're going to be taken through the process. So you actually have to affirmatively opt out at the DMV. A few other states, Colorado, Oregon, they have a back-end opt-out where there is no interaction at the DMV. You are automatically registered at the DMV, and later you will receive a postcard of some sort. And at that point, you can opt out. Uh, Although Pennsylvania said that they were uh, going to immediately implement this, I haven't seen any reporting about the actual uh, process, people who have gone through it, what the questions are. Uh, I haven't even seen front end versus back end, but I do think that this is a front end opt out. There will be some opportunity to have a conversation at the DMV to say, please stop. So, um, but that's, that's the state of the procedure. It is controversial for a couple of reasons. Um, for one is the law. Uh, this, most states that have automatic voter registration, so of the 23 states that had it, 20 of them had legislation or even a ballot initiative to have voter registration. So to have one guy, announced that it's going to happen is unusual. Um, That is, that's not what usually happens. And people don't like that. And looking at the state law, it doesn't, it doesn't clearly bless automatic voter registration. The state law says that um, a voter registration application completed at the DMV shall serve as an application to register to vote unless the applicant fails to sign it. But one legal scholar at the Heritage Foundation interprets that to say the DMV can't register someone to vote unless they fill out that application and sign it at the DMV. That doesn't allow the DMV to simply take the name from your driver's license application and register that individual to vote without their permission or a signature. So basically he's saying that you have to have an opt-in process under Pennsylvania law. You can't have an opt-out process. You have to affirmatively sign and go through the process. So that that seems to be what the legal argument will be. So you've got this rule of law thing. Second, I think people are concerned about errors, including ballots being sent to non-citizens, although in order to register to vote, you are obviously supposed to be a citizen and of age, etc. But it's uh, (laughs) if there's one thing that's maybe less reliable than the federal government, sometimes it is the state government. It's not like you've got a bunch of people at the DMV who do, you know, who are 
election administrators. They're just trying to do their job. They're not going to spend that much time on it. So there's a concern about errors. Um, and then third is from the Republican point of view, definitely is a huge lack of trust of what happens to registration information once it goes into the DMV. Um, we have seen groups that are not supposed to be sharing information with Democrats. So 501c3s that are supposed to be nonpartisan group called Everybody Votes uh, have huge, hugely funded voter registration drives. And then they coordinate with uh, consultants who also are consultants to Democrats. And that voter registration information seems to be trickling into Democrat hands. So what is Pennsylvania, What? how are they going to store this information? Who are they going to give it to? What are the what are the restrictions on this type of thing? Because it feels to Republicans like other nonpartisan groups are using this information to really do ballot chase operations. So those three concerns, rule of law, errors, and what happens with the information, I think is driving a lot of Republican anxiety in obviously an enormous and very consequential swing state. So, uh, Mike, I guess, uh, are you in favor? Are you like, this is a good move for Pennsylvania? Well, on those three, I like how you broke it down in those three things. Uh, And I would say on the first one, rule of law, I think there's a legitimate question there. Uh, It should be pointed out that Pennsylvania, uh, that Pennsylvania Democrats tried to get this through the legislature under the previous governor, didn't have the votes. And now the current governor is saying, well, this is essentially an administrative change. Maybe that holds up. Maybe it doesn't. But it is absolutely a legitimate question to raise. And I would say that other things being equal, even if the governor can do this through executive order or executive action, that it's better for it to go through the legislature. So I I think that's a completely valid point to raise, a reasonable concern to have. On the issue of errors and also the issue of security, I would say, well, those may be problems, but they're not problems unique to this because the DMV already handles, I mean, under Motor Voter for back in the 90s, the DMV does it. So maybe these are issues, but that's that's not really directly related to this. And there were some folks, some kind of rabble rouser type folks like, oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Stephen Miller saying, well, there would be no citizenship verification. Well, well, no, actually, the standards that you have to get a driver's license or a state ID in Pennsylvania are, you know, very rigorous. It's it's not like they're they're loosening standards or anything like that. I'm not saying that these things aren't issues, but I'm saying that they're not issues that are directly related to this particular change. And, and then finally, I'll say there's a fourth I'd added a fourth category, and that is the concern that I think is driving a lot of this on both ends, is that Democrats like this because they believe it will benefit them politically. Republicans dislike this because they believe it will hurt them politically. And I'll say that the research on this is somewhat somewhat mixed, actually. It's generally found that automatic registration programs, as you might expect, have a small, modest effect on registration, somewhere under... 3% more eligible voters that are registered in 
automatic registration states. But of course, that doesn't lead to more voter as the same amount of voter turnout because not everyone who's registered is vote. That's around 1%. And in terms of partisan differential, maybe that, that slightly advantages Democrats, but there are plenty of Republicans who also wouldn't have been registered that are and that vote. So in the end, we're maybe talking about what might be a 0.2, 0.3% advantage for Democrats. And, and, you know, hey, is that, does that matter? It can certainly matter in a close state like Pennsylvania. But in general, as a matter of good public policy, I think that opt out for registration, at least if it's done in the way you describe it and the, at the front end, totally makes sense. And, and I think the governor's right that it can be a convenience and a time saving and a taxpayer savings. I'd never heard of the back end thing where you send somebody a, a, a card after saying you can, that seems to me just like messed up because that, that's, that's the opposite of saving time and money. And so I'd have a problem with that, but, but yeah, as a matter of public policy in general, I think absolutely I'm for, I'm for opt out automatic registration. And I think with uh, your point about, you know, who does automatic voter registration benefit politically, I think that goes to my end of well, what's being done with the re registration information, because if it's finding itself through data processors like Catalyst, which I think Pennsylvania has used and maybe is using, which is the data processor of the Democratic Party. So if you're sharing data processors and all of a sudden it looks like somehow the Democrats have a better ballot chase operation, right? They know who has already voted. They know who's registered. They know who's double registered. They know, like, if the Democrats have more data, which they currently do, Democrats have way more data than the Republicans. Um, then I think it it doesn't really matter who who would uh, voter registration benefit in the abstract in Pennsylvania because the information is somehow finding its way to a place it shouldn't. Which I'm not saying it does. I'm just saying that's a concern. Then then I think then we know who it's going to benefit. The beneficiary is going to be the party that has more data. And this isn't some sort of conspiracy theory that I'm cooking up here. I think it's a really good um, article from Capital Research Center on the 501c3 called Everybody Votes, which they are allowed to do voter registration, but they are not allowed to be partisan. And, you know, that these types of stories give Republicans a lot of pause. So it's not necessarily like maybe in the abstract, you're right, automatic voter registration would barely benefit Democrats, something like that. But if the Democrats have the data and the Republicans don't, then it very much benefits them in a system where ballot chasing is uh, is a, a new necessity. Yeah, I, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree entirely. And I think we need to make a distinction between, well, if Democrats have a better ballot chasing operation in general because they're just better organized and are playing by the rules and just happen to be better at that, that's, that's one thing and that's fine. And hey, Republicans need to get on that. But if, if there is even any sort of legitimate 
issues raised with information sharing and information security, I, I don't care which party it benefits. Those are things that should be investigated uh, very thoroughly by nonpartisan organizations because that's, that's, that goes to the heart of our democracy. And if people are raising legitimate concerns about the security of voter information and those concerns aren't taken seriously and aren't investigated, that is a huge problem. So I, I agree with you entirely on that. Yeah. And I, I agree that, um, there are probably are some time savings and, and maybe a benefit to having a opt-in versus opt-out. You're at the DMV. You're very like Colorado has a lot of data on this because they went from, um, an opt out system to, or an opt in system to an opt out system to the postcard system at the end. And they, measured percentage registration and it obviously goes up um even though like people just tend to stick with the default so this will absolutely increase registrations even though you do have an opportunity to opt out um i think one interesting lesson from oregon they also send the postcard on the back end but they have really been struggling to have turnout rates high turnout rates in part because when you're automatically registered, you don't have the information you would normally get when you're filling out a registration application, including what political party are you. So in Oregon, since you have no interaction at the DMV, you're just taken through the system. The postcard afterwards says, hey, would you like to be registered as Democrat, Republican, Independent, what? And nobody responds to the postcard. And so the parties have been unable to know who's in their party and therefore been it's been much more difficult to mobilize. So sometimes registration itself actually can lessen voter turnout if you're not connecting those people. And so there's something about applying, applying to vote, saying which party you want to be affiliated with or nothing. That kind of engages you. It's like uh, it's like when you open the door to a salesperson. You're just like you're a little bit engaged. And now you're going to go. So there's there is something I think pro democratic, uh, putting you in the right mindset, making you feel like you're an engaged citizen about actually applying to vote. That you do lose that, um, and I think that is a negative when you're just magically registered. Yeah, I I think that's that makes sense. And I think what we need to balance in this is, well, uh, that sense of engagement you get that actually being being forced or being required to take some sort of pro proactive step to be part of the system to think about it. But then there's also the situation where, you know, there are, there, there are other busy people who forget things. And then do you say on election day, someone says, well, I, I really wanted to vote, but I didn't realize I wasn't registered. And so how do we weigh those barriers to voting that are that, that aren't necessarily equally shared? Someone like me is, is going to have a lot. Fewer. And so it's a, it's a very real trade off. And, and I think people who just simply say, well, we should make it just dead simple, easy. Everyone can vote on the day 
of election, no requirements. That seems to me pretty crazy, as well as some of these requirements saying that, well, you need to have all this time before and and all these strict kind of re- – and, and so I feel like both sides on this or both extremes on this don't recognize that like with so many other things, there's there's no free lunch here and there are certain trade-offs no matter what sort of system you end up adopting. And it's a matter of, well, how, what sort of trade-offs are you most comfortable with? All right. Well, on that issue, I think we've, we've gone kind of long on this. And so, uh, so yeah, but we have plenty to talk about that we didn't get to. And we're going to do that on the midweek show, which may now start recording in just a minute, which you will hear if you're not with us right now. And some people are, you will hear, well, midweek. That's how that works. But anyway, we really do uh, appreciate you listening. And if you are not a supporter and are interested in becoming one and doing things like being part of uh, uh, the show as we're recording it, as a number of folks did today, well, you can do that through Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com slash politicsguys. Also through Venmo or at politicsguys or through PayPal. You can find the support links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you would like to get our full midweek show, but you're not in a position to do that financially, uh, support the podcast right now, send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get that set up for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us if you spread the word about the show. And that means it can be something simple as subscribing rating us on the podcast app, reviewing us on the podcast app you listen on, as well as sharing episodes on social media. And we are on X and on Facebook and we post stuff about our new episodes. I try to make those posts as engaging as possible with some various snippets and things like that. There are some good ones from this episode. I'm sure if you could check that out and share those, that really helps us out as well. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, well, if you are a supporter, there's our Discord channel where we have discussions throughout the week. And that's one of the benefits of being a supporter in addition to ad-free episodes, uh, versions of everything we put out. Uh, and we would, uh, yeah, we, we'd love to hear from you on Discord or mailapoliticsguys.com or Facebook or X, and you'll find links to all of that in the show notes. And finally, a very special thanks to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.